You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I have a very exciting interview. I'll be talking with Christina Gorsuch. She is the curator of mammals from the Cincinnati Zoo. And we're going to talk about a lot of things, creatures big and small, but primarily big today, as Christina is part of Team Fiona, which is a baby hippo who's now a year old. And she had has become a social media sensation. So Christina is going to share with us her journey taking care of Fiona and what it was like to be a part of the team that took care of this hippo and learning about her journey at the zoo. So hello, Christina. Hello. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is an honor. I uh, will be talking a lot about Fiona today, <laughs> but... When you agreed to do this interview, I was so excited because I have been stalking or following and smiling, following Fiona's journey pretty much since day, the first week that it occurred. And even to the point where for Christmas, I wanted to get my husband, John, a a Fiona calendar, but they were sold out. So, yeah, so I'm just really glad you're here today. We're going to learn a lot, and um, I believe you're the first curator that we've had on our podcast, so you'll get to Ooh, tell our you. listeners a lot of, about your the daily uh, your daily trials and tribulations and, you know, the, the interesting parts about your job. Thank you for being here, and just to get started, can you go ahead and give me a, a, a little background, tell me about yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, I... Let's see. I grew up in Southern California, but I went to college in New Orleans and that's the first zoo I ever volunteered at was Audubon Zoo in New Orleans. And when I was in college, Ooh, fun. yeah, right. I mean, oh yeah. College in New Orleans, such a hardship. That's a terrible, terrible idea. I was going to say um, that's probably about as fun right? as it can get. Yeah. I told my parents I was only going there for education, but that was a total lie. But, um, <laughs> uh, when I was there, I still was under the, 18 year old impression that I was going to go, you know, be the next Diane Fossey. And so my uh, area of study at Tulane was primatology. Um, and that's where I volunteered awesome. at Audubon Zoo was with primates. And then mm-hmm. I went and worked in Costa Rica for a summer and decided that I did not like field research and it was not for me. And so, Oh, you know, so, you know, what's so funny, Christina is I, I did my first uh, internship or I wasn't paid. So volunteering, at Zoo Atlanta, and I did golden lion tamarins, and I worked for a PhD researcher in it, and she told me, she's like, if you go into primates, just be sure that you fully understand that in the field, you have to be looking up mm-hmm. for eight to ten hours a day, and it and it, it can be very stressful on your neck. Yeah. We were in... <laughs> and so I was like, no thanks. Yeah. We were in the middle of like a rainforest in Costa Rica. I thought we were going to go, I was going to study spider monkeys, which are upper canopy dwellers and almost impossible for like really experienced researchers to track. So instead we ended up studying howler monkeys, which are just the stoners in the trees. So you literally Ah. in the same spot for 10 to 12 hours, mosquitoes, bugs, whatever attacking you and just watch these like stoned monkeys sleeping in their branches. 
it was uh that aren't doing you know. anything <laughs> it was like it was and and the other thing that did not occur to my well at that age sadly i was 20 years old already 20 year old brain was like it there's no days off it's like seven days a week right <laughs> so, oh yeah oh okay. yeah yeah definitely during field research time yeah, yeah. so anywho i um came back from that trip and was like, maybe I'll just work at a zoo and have a zoo career versus uh, trying to be this like, you know, intrepid researcher out in the jungles somewhere. Um, and so, so that's essentially what I ended up doing. I just had the fortune of there being a seasonal position at Audubon and then a temporary position and then a full-time position and just kind of stacked up that way. So that's where I started and that was the first and last time I actually worked with primates, though, was at Audubon Zoo. And then I went to Zoo Atlanta, um, and I was there for about mm-hmm. nine years, which is where John and I met um, and got into all sorts of Yes, and just a, a, a little <laughs> disclosure for the listeners is if they stay tuned at the end, Christina will um, divulge a story about my husband, John, <laughs> that will be PG or PG-13. But, yes, he uh, always – talks about his days in Atlanta and how much fun it was with you girls taking him to the club, which just kind of blows my mind. I haven't, I've seen him on the, we went to a wedding this past weekend and he, he, he did break it down on the dance floor. Uh, I mean, he actually did the worm kind of, it's more was like the flop. So I know it's, he's in, it's in there somewhere, but we so rarely see it. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, stay tuned and she'll, uh, she'll, she'll, uh, she'll, she'll share some stories, but yes. So, so you got to work with, with my honey cakes there. Yep. Yep. And so um, I was there for almost nine years and that was where all of my foundations pretty much occurred. Um, I had some great mentors there and just a lot of great opportunities. Zoo Atlanta for everything that's great and bad about it is a medium sized zoo that mm-hmm. very much um, gives its keepers leeway to kind of create their own destinies a little bit. Awesome. So mm-hmm. if you are um, able and willing to put a ridiculous amount of time and energy into things, I was fortunate at least that my, um, all my different managers there over the years were happy to let me kind of go in whatever direction I wanted to go in. So I learned a lot and was um, a supervisor there of, of multiple areas, including our petting zoo, which is where my like heart still lies. So funny to me to think that I was like, a great ape researcher and then went to like goats and pigs are my favorite animals. Well, so, at the Link- um, yeah, at the Lincoln Park Zoo, that's, I started in their farm in the zoo and that I just love, and they actually only hired me because they had two naughty ponies and because I didn't have much <laughs> zoo experience at all. I'd only just done the internship in, uh, at Zoo Atlanta with the gold nine Tamarins. So no keeping experience, but they were like, she knows horses. She can handle these naughty, naughty ponies that nobody could handle. And then I got there and I couldn't even handle them. They're so naughty. No, just kidding. <laughs> but that's, but yeah, I got my, I love the concept of a naughty pony. That just conjures an image. Right. I know they were so naughty, but, but we worked with them and, and, and everybody got on board pretty quickly, but, but yeah, I got to, you know, melt cows and raise chicks and I love my farm days. Yeah. I was so snobby about it. Like I've been taking care of orangutans and gorillas and then, uh, the, general curator at the time was like, Hey, we'd like you to go work in the children's zoo. There's going to be an opening there. And I was like, I'm not taking care of goats and pigs. Are you insane? Um, and they're two of my favorite animals to this day. I was going to say, then you got to rub on oh, them all God, day long so and the zoo cute. paid you and money. So smart. And you're like, yeah, you're like, they're so like, I'm, I'm winning here. Yeah. Like, this is amazing. I get to hug and smooch them and it's okay. Yeah. And they're like happy to see you. They're like, what would you like me to do for you today? They're great. Um, yeah. Goats wag their tails. Yeah. When they are happy, like they're dogs. Dogs with mm-hmm. hooves. They're amazing. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah. So I had the petting zoo and then I had our African hoofstock section at, in Zoo Atlanta. And then I was relief keeper or relief supervisor for um, our African elephants. So, there was cool. a lot of experience gained there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wanted to go um, get a different kind of experience because I'd only worked in Southern zoos. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to Brookfield Zoo in Chicago, which is a awesome. union zoo and like the mama union of union zoos because it's a Teamsters union. Well, Chicago, <laughs> yeah, I was at Lincoln Park Zoo. And yeah, it's very, very much so. It was my first union zoo experience. And yeah, yeah it, it, it was definitely interesting. And we made a lot of money there. So I couldn't complain. Yes. 
Yes. <laughs> I, uh, my uh, curator at Atlanta, when I told him what the salary was, he was like, so you'll be making more than me as a supervisor. So you should move up there and live there as long as you can and pay off all your bills before you go work for another poor group. And I was like, okay, exactly. noted. Um, but I, you know, I really liked my time at Brookfield and I, I've just really been fortunate that at Brookfield as well, I had a, a curator who was very supportive of like giving me opportunities that I, I guess some supervisors wouldn't normally get um, a lot more kind of quasi management opportunities and just support. Mm-hmm. She very much like mentored me for curatorial future and, and kind of one of the things about a union zoo is everybody has their job. So there's not a ton of overlap. Mm-hmm. So it gave me a bit more time than I would have ever had at ah. like Atlanta or somewhere to explore um, some of the stuff like working for SS with SSPs and being part of different committees and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was there for five years. Um, and then I... In which role were you there? I was um, a lead which... keeper. I was lead keeper of our okay. Africa Savannah area. Awesome. And then um, mm-hmm. it was a pretty big department. So we were like relief supervisors for different areas. So um, there was four areas in that. We had our pachyderm building, which was rhinos and tape tapers and pygmy hippos and a Nile hippo. Um, and then an Australian area, which I oversaw for like a couple of years. And then um, we had our African savanna and our African forest, which were our, our okapis and diapers and stuff. So it was a mishmash. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so that role there was super weird though, because I I was a lead keeper in Atlanta, but I was salaried in Atlanta, and I worked I don't even know how many hours a week. So I worked forty hours a week of routine, and then however much extra time to do the actual supervisory stuff. And so when I got to Brookfield, it was just so much more like here's your day, you got to clock in and clock out, you get overtime for even like two minutes more than yeah. mm-hmm. your eight hour shift. Um, and there was a lot of time built into my schedule, um, where I wasn't doing routine and I could do a lot more supervisory stuff and like just kind of learning the ropes of things. Develop. Yeah. Developing your more, more of your management skills and actually get the time to do that. Because I know I was an interim lead keeper for about six months and, and I previously had been assistant lead keeper, but with, while being in the interim role, it was even at a union zoo, it was incredible how much was put on your plate as far as management, but then also animal care. Yeah. So it gave me a big insight into, for me personally, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go back to school. <laughs> um, yeah. But I didn't, I never went to the next, and that's why I'm very curious to talk with you because I never went in another step further to be in just the management role and not have the daily keeper animal care role. So yeah, that yeah. lead keeper position, and I'm sure it's probably at every zoo is, is, is a very, I, I applaud all of them. I'll put it, put it that way. Like it seemed when I was it's a young a keeper. Position. Yeah. When I was a young keeper, I'm like, Oh man, that job is so easy. And then I did it. Yeah. I'm like, Holy shnikes. This is a lot. I think being a working supervisor, whatever industry you're in has got to be the most difficult role out there because you're sure. constantly walking that line, right? Like you're part of a team and you want to represent that team and do the best for them. But then you're also got one foot kind of into management. So you've got to represent what management wants and like represent both sides and plus do both areas of work, like the physical work and then all the computer, like it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to juggle. Uh, and Brookfield does a really good job um, of supporting their, their work. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In most, in most departments, things always change. Sometimes people, you know, go out sick or out on leave and things get tight, but in general, so then I um, just kind of felt like I was ready to like move into a more like complete management role. My my body was like, hey, we're done. Um, pushing poop and pushing wheel. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I got the, the plantar fasciitis in both feet. I couldn't walk. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, I think I need to go back to school. Or just... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, hard I, um... with a, it's hard with the, t- with the large mammals. I mean, probably any any yeah. any area in the zoo, but especially for me in Chicago with the large mammals, it was it was tough on my body. Yeah. It's hard and it's weird, like, what what happened to me at Brookfield, though, the downside of having, like, not as much keeper work to do, like, only doing keeper work, like, a couple times a week, is my, I didn't mentally register that. So, like, when we'd be like, oh, an alfalfa truck to unload with 50-pound <laughs> bales of alfalfa, I'd just be like, sure, I can do that. And then, oh, I can't move my elbow for the whole rest of the week. Um, so, yeah, I ended up with, like, multiple injuries in, like, two years. <laughs> 
period of time. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm done. Um, so I um, started looking at curator positions and Cincinnati Zoo um, had a curator of mammals position open. It was the first job I ever applied for, the first one I interviewed for, and they <laughs> offered it to me. Awesome. So you like, go, girl. I guess I'll... I guess I'll take it. Yeah, uh, that's like the spouse. creme de la creme. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. My spouse was a little bit like, so we're going to move from Chicago to Cincinnati? Like, is that really our life plan? <laughs> like, I think Cincinnati's a fun place, but neither well, of us had ever knew anything about it. Oh, like, you I hadn't only, been there. I yeah, I... For like two days, like one weekend, five years before. Okay, yeah, because I was, of course, being in Michigan in the Midwest, I had driven through Ohio and all this and that. And, but I had never, Cincinnati's in Southern Ohio. And so I had never, I finally got to go to a friend's wedding about 10 years ago. And it's stunningly gorgeous as far as the 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 hills. Yes. And I I unfortunately didn't get a chance to go to the zoo when I was there, but my, my friend whose wedding I was going to was a keeper there for years and always show pictures. And, and I mean, just the, yeah, the topography there was just stunning. It's not like typical Midwest, you know, flat and cornfields, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's where I grew up. But it, yeah, it was, I was really, I was very much so impressed by, by the city itself, the architecture and yeah. So hopefully well, it's such an old city. Yeah. It's just a cool place. It's a really cool place. And I, I knew I liked the zoo. I'd been here. I, I had, I take it back. I've, I'd been here more than once, but I'd been here. I'd come to Cincinnati maybe like in the same year that I applied for the job. So maybe six months before the job posting, um, for an African painted dog researcher um, that I know was getting a award. Uh-huh. Um, so I just came for his lecture and his award party and all that stuff. And I met the director, the CEO and the COO of the zoo just at this like little gathering. That's awesome. And I was just so struck by how involved they were, how engaged they were, how they knew everybody. And, you know, a lot of zoos are like, Oh, we're a family. Um, which, you know, is is great, but Cincinnati had more of a like authentic kind of um, we're all in this together vibe yeah. from the CEO all the way down, and they all like, I mean, the CEO knows like all the janitors' names, like they know like everyone here, which just was striking to me. I hadn't really um, quite experienced anything to that level before, which is why when the position came up, I was like, oh, I would be interested in that yeah um, so it wasn't totally sight unseen and so you've been there a couple years now in Cincinnati as a curator of yeah, large mammals almost yeah almost three years awesome and what if you could give our listeners what is the I know this is a very t- difficult question but what does the average day look like for you <laughs> it, it just I know it's from from day to day people always ask me like what does a curator do and I was like well I manage the animal collection and the people that take care of the animals I think and then mm-hmm. the next question is, what's easier, managing the humans or the animals? And Yee. the animals are always easier, like Definitely. a million times easier. Yeah. Um, so if I have a day, so mo- usually the humans uh, interrupt my day yeah. all day long. <laughs> it's very seldom that it's the animals. And, and when it is, that's usually a pretty serious situation when something unknown occurs with the animals. But uh, the humans all day long, um, are, are, are needing things. They're, they're a little so, needier. I mean, day, yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. My, my days are sadly, mostly a lot of meetings, mm-hmm. um, and a decent amount of time answering emails, writing protocols and suggestions and plans and all that. Um, right now it's exciting because we just launched a, um, $150 million capital campaign, that's our 10 year capital campaign. The zoo's 150th anniversary is in 2025. Awesome. And so our goal is to open our new five acre elephant center, um, in 2025. So it's oh, wonderful. Yeah, that's um, but- awesome. And as curators, curator of the large, large mammal collection, that obviously involves you directly. Yeah. So, so literally. Um, I'm involved in every single one of our new construction projects that is occurring in the next 10 years. Oh, wow. So a lot of my time is now spent learning stuff about construction and developing oh. new exhibits. And oh, Christina, you'll have, you and John will have to get together for a beer <laughs> and you guys can, uh, swap, swap stories. Cause he, he's now designing exhibits. He's actually opening one very soon and a walk through aviary. And yeah, it's a whole different ball game. He's like, I should have gone to construction school. Like, what? <laughs> 
I know. It's insane. <laughs> I, I was fortunate in Atlanta to help design Outback Station, which is the Australian, like, petting zoo mm-hmm. area down there. I was part of, like, they allowed keepers to be part of that team. That's cool. But, like, uh, by no means was that actual real preparation for, like, being the person that the architect's like, well, where do you want this drinker? I'm like, I don't know. Ah, <laughs> right, right. Wherever other people put drinkers, yes, I don't know. Yes, yeah, there so, needs to be yeah, um, a form or something. Yeah, yeah. It's, and I think that's what happens as a curator, as you, like, move up as manager. People uh, look to you for answers that they assume you like actually know the answer to. And most of it is just like educated guesses. Sure. A lot, a lot of time spent on the old Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. But yeah, that sounds like exactly what we need. Yeah. Well, I think, but it is also fun. I mean, there's a lot of growth and growth is, although it's challenging, I know it's in the end, it's really rewarding as well throughout your career to, to, you know, and to keep learning and keep being challenged and keep helping the animals and improving upon their care and welfare and, and of course, up and, and the humans under your care as well. I know from the little bit of management that I've done, it's always amazing when they have successes. Like if they go get another awesome job yeah. or if they win an award or they train an animal to get on a scale that like would never get on a scale. So yeah, yeah it definitely, it's, it's, you know, it, it's definitely a fun time in your life, I would imagine. Yeah. And yeah, I'm constantly impressed by my keepers. They're all like way better trainers than I ever pretended <laughs> to be. They do amazing. Oh, stuff. that's awesome. And now shifting gears a little bit to hippos, since that's what we want to focus a little bit on today. Uh, can you give a brief description to the listeners of what it's like to work with such amazing, amazing and large creatures? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's a, it's a little bit undescribable, but you know, we always, I feel like categorize yeah. our like large exotic animals into domestic categories. So, you know, black rhinos are just like giant puppy dogs, right? They're just, or rhinos in general, are mm-hmm. just, like big dogs. Um, yeah, I've rubbed a few rhino bellies yeah. in my lifetime. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, and so hippos are, are kind of like just really like big water cows, really, you know, so okay. they're, they're awesome. pretty, I love yeah, cows, right? So they're pretty friendly and, you know, they have the reputation in Africa or not a reputation. It's actual truth that, you know, they're responsible for some of the most deaths in the areas that they live in Africa. Like if there are hippos in your mm-hmm. neighborhood, they are going to be responsible for the most deaths. Um, and that's because they're pretty territorial and they're hard to see. So if you've ever been, um, just think of a muddy river, and it's hard to see something like an alligator because they're just floating with just their eyes above. And it's the same thing with a hippo. They are just usually look like a log or a rock. If their eyes are closed, you can't even see that that's an animal. And so I think what happens a lot there is people come across them and surprise them. And there's, I mean, they're too big. Their immediate reaction is like, take them down. Um, and they're, you know, they're vegetarians, they're herbivores, so they're not eating anybody. But they, um, their just immediate response is to grab um, which is going to do some serious damage. Sure. And I think in some of the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in some of the areas that they live in, in Africa too, are pretty rural and have a lot of uh, local or indigenous people that re- rely on the water and the river sheds more than we do. They rely on it for, for laundry, for everything. Um, for everything. And so they're you know, fishing, all that. So they're spending probably more time on the water or doing things in the water than we would be here in the yeah. United States or other more developed countries. And so therefore you're going to have more conflict or an, an, you know, a, a, chan- a higher chance for more interactions. Yeah, correct. And yeah, there's not an option. Like that's where everything is. So you can't like avoid the hippos because they're right. in the water that you need to use. Um, so, but so hippos and zoos are generally really friendly. Um, they're pretty um, social and gregarious with, other hippos and they're that way with humans as well and they can be a bit stubborn they can definitely have their personalities and some attitude they're kind of they're kind of a little bit more of a like well why should i animal versus a like sure whatever you'd like me to do it's a bit more of a like but why and usually the answer is because i have delicious treats here and they're like okay cool then i'll happily do it (laughs) um they're insanely food motivated and yeah they're just impressive i mean all of our large animals is just kind of one of those things where you always have to take a step back to appreciate like that's a big animal I'm working with and looking at. Um, and so we, you know, obviously always respect them immensely. Um, but generally they, they're all pretty, pretty, pretty good, friendly animals. 
And do you have any interesting facts about hippos that maybe only a, a curator or a keeper would maybe be aware of? I don't know that I have like secret facts, but <laughs> top secret, um, <laughs> secret, secret. My my two favorite like natural history facts about hippos that I still people get shocked by is one that they don't float, that they sink because they're super dense, mm-hmm. um, which is why like hippopotamus means river horse mm-hmm. um, because they literally walk along the bottom of the riverbeds, and so a lot of the newer zoo exhibits that have the glass front. Um, like ours does here at Cincinnati, you can just see that, that kind of like water ballet walking along the bottom, which is super impressive. And with Fiona was like a ton of our actual fear of, of teaching her to swim. I say teaching in air quotes because she was a hippo and didn't need us to teach her anything, but in our minds, we needed to teach her how to swim because we were terrified. Like she's going to sink. What if she like breathes in the water, which she would not do because she's an aquatic mammal. But like, again, our human minds, if you think of being a human, that sinks in water. That sounds terrifying, right? Uh, horrible, um, yes. But not for a hippo, because that's what they're designed to do. So so I think that's always fascinating about them, and that they're nocturnal. Um, I didn't even, ah. honestly, to be honest, I didn't even know that until uh, a handful of years ago, because I guess I never even thought about it. Like, Sure. You know, like... Yeah, when do they actually eat? Yeah, they when sit they in the graze? water, and they eat water grasses and stuff near the water. That's what they do. But no, they're nocturnal, so they forage out in the grasslands of the savannah overnight for five to six like a hours horse. a night. Mm-hmm. Like a horse. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So those are like, I always find those two things to be fascinating. But um, they do love a good mouth rub, a good gum rub, Ooh. which we don't tend to do with the adults because uh, that's a bit dangerous. But uh, they do like like having their teeth brushed and stuff. That's why it's easy to train hippos to open their mouths. Um, but with Fiona, she had no teeth, so we could rub her gums all the time, and that was like one of her favorite rewards. Yes, John tells stories um, about that as well. With some of the <laughs> some, and and, then, and now he teaches zookeepers. I'm like, so do you teach your new students to stick their hands in an adult hippo's mouth? And he's like, uh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We use devices for that now. That's back in the day. There's all sorts of pictures of there's some great old old pictures in like German zoos of like zookeepers like half in a hippo's mouth just kind of sitting in there picking at their teeth i'm like that is amazing wow all did that stuff yeah i was watching <laughs> now have you gotten a chance to see them in hippos in the wild i have i've been very fortunate i've seen them twice both times in kenya and okay. um, the masai mara mm-hmm. which has a, a a large abundance of hippos actually um and yeah, you know, what's funny is I was in um, Kenya last summer, um, right around the end of June, right around this time of the year, actually. And um, we had not put Fiona, uh, we had not introduced her to Henry yet. We had not put the whole family back together yet. Gotcha. And I was sitting out on like, you know, a deck over a river with all these hippos below. And there were baby hippos out there, way smaller than Fiona, that had huge scratches on them. Like... One was clearly from a crocodile. Others were just scratches from, who knows, branches, other hippos, whatever. But, like, big gouges in their sides, all this. And they were totally fine. They were <laughs> fine. And I was like, okay, we're putting her. We're putting her in with her family. Yeah. I was like, she's a hippo. She's designed for, like, some rough life. You know? I heard, yeah. To, like, group. Mm-hmm. to take it and keep going. Um, and so, so yeah, that was... Um, that was a good motivation for me to see those wild hippos. And now when you were either in the wild or when you, of course, in your daily life in Cincinnati working with Fiona and her family, uh, do you ever get to hear the hippos vocalize? <laughs> uh, we do. I've heard them. We heard them a lot in uh, Kenya um, all day and night long. Okay. Um, well, our hippos here don't vocalize as much. Not as much. Mm-hmm. Now, with that being said, is there any way that you would like to give our listeners a little example of what a typical hippo vocalization may sound like? Because I I think I'm really good at it, but I've been heard that I've been told that I'm not good at it by both my husband and a professional animal expert. (laughs) So I was wondering, since you are a hippo expert, if you could maybe share with me what it sounds like. So I know I am terrible at it. My um, oh no, head, 
<laughs> my head keeper, Wendy Rice, is excellent at it. She can do the male, the female, and Fiona. Um, wow. I need to I meet this. Do, I know, right? Girl. I should have Wendy come in here. Um, I can do Fiona. I don't oh, even that's know. the best. I don't even know that I could do the adult hippos uh, at all. But okay, well, I, no, that's that's totally fair. Since we're going to focus on Fiona here in the, in the second part of the interview, maybe we can we'll start with what a juvenile or young or baby female hippo sounds like. And this is going to be a terrible version of it. So for anybody <laughs> out there that's like, um, I've heard a baby hippo, and that's not what it sounds like. Like, agreed. It probably is not going to sound like this. Okay, you can do a couple um, tries, and we'll edit in the best one. Okay, we'll see. So she does more of a like. Like she like squeaks a little bit. Um, that's more what her sounds like. Cause BB does more of a, like, I can't even do it. I can't even like get in my mind how to do it. Like I can hear it, but I don't even know how to even like move my mouth to make that sound. <laughs> that's okay. I, no the, I will let you off the hook. The baby hippo has not been heard yet on this podcast. And I think, <laughs> I actually think that's pretty amazing. So uh, let the naysayers be the naysayers, but I give you an A plus, Christina. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much. And now, so speaking of Fiona, since we got to hear what she sounds like in Christina's eyes, sounded like a, a little baby dog <laughs> to me, a little puppy or something so sweet. Uh, can you give the listeners a little background about Fiona, her story, and what it was like for the keeper staff and yourself when she was first born? Yeah, so Fiona was born um, at at least six weeks premature. Um, every all, everything we have says six weeks because that's the minimum that we know. Um, but really, when we look at her now in hindsight, developmentally, and and the, the problems we had with her, she was more likely like eight to ten weeks premature. But wow. at least six weeks premature. Um, and uh, and the reason we know that one hundred percent is because her. Um, her mom and dad, Henry and BB, were put together and bred the first day they were put together. And that's the number we used for the minimum of how old she was. Um, but they continued to breed for that entire first month they were together. So when she was exactly conceived is a little unknown. But um, so she was born six weeks premature, which we knew was happening because BB was um, exhibiting all the signs of labor. Um, and it was January. So we knew like things were not going, going well. And, um, we were mostly concerned about BB. We wanted to make sure that nothing else was wrong with her. We assumed she was losing the calf and that the calf wasn't going to be alive. Um, and she's a first time mom and sometimes that happens. So we were just kind of keeping a close eye on her to make sure nothing else was wrong with her. And then, um, in the middle of the night I was watching the cameras and she came up on land and rolled around a little bit and out popped a baby hippo that was alive. And I mean, you could have knocked me over with a feather. Wow. And my jaw was on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I immediately, I, I mean, I, I literally, I didn't even look at anything. I saw that the baby was moving. I shut the computer, called one of my keepers, who's the other person that lives the closest to the zoo and said, the baby's born and it's alive. Get to the zoo. And so we both like jumped in our cars, got there. He got there a minute before me, which I still say, say like he was sleeping in his clothes. Like I know he was, there's no way. He <laughs> and so uh, I got there and he uh, was already standing in the, in the barn looking into the stall. And I was like, is it still alive? And he's like, it's trying to stand up. It's totally alive. And so um, just kind of went into, uh, I don't know, new calf mode, which is what we had a birth plan mm-hmm. for. Um, and, and set up the stall, move BB over, which so something that happens with hippo moms, like, so hippos, they are territorial and they can become aggressive. So particularly when they have a new calf, a baby they're protecting, even the nicest of hippos can become, uh, not sure. Of course. Uh, oh yeah. I, I've, I've been known like to that. have a little bit of a uh, hippo yeah. mom and me once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so BB was super cooperative. So she happily moved over to a different stall. We were able to put a bunch of hay down and um, I was able to pick up Fiona. Um, anybody that's seen the video is using the term pick up. I'm using that loosely because she was the slimiest, slipperiest <laughs> thing I have ever held in my entire life. Like I cannot even describe how like holding like a was. wet watermelon um, or something so or like a, like a, watermelon covered in bacon wow. juice kind of a thing and but like a like a squishy 
flexible yeah. watermelon too because it's like squishy and floppy and it was just insane so but anyway she was warm and she had her eyes open and she was moving her legs and her head um so we set her up in the middle of the stall and we let bb back in and bb licked her a little bit and, and nudged her and laid near her we watched her for about 30 minutes and she was just clearly getting weaker and she wasn't able to stand up so our vet had arrived by that time so we um pulled her out of there and she was pretty cold by that time. So we were um, focused on getting her warmed up and very, just very quickly realized, I mean, we realized this from the beginning. She was insanely mm-hmm. small um, and she was pretty scrawny. She looked uncooked, you know, she just looked like a not, not quite done um, hippo calf. But we realized, you know, after just a short time with her that she just didn't have any muscles developed or any muscle control. Like she wasn't physically capable of standing up. Um, mm-hmm. She weighed 29 pounds, which, Previous to her, the lowest hippo weight on record was 55 pounds. Oh, my word. Um, so she's about half that. And mm-hmm. um, on average, hippo calves are closer. They're more like 80 to 100 pounds when they're born. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. So she was really, really small. Um, and we just took it day to day. We really just were like, you know, it's, you know, it, it seems, I think, I don't know, like this huge, impressive uh amount of time and energy that was dedicated to it but for any of us that work in zoos we know like that's what we do that's what you do matter right a hippo or a baby goat or a lizard a frog a frog yeah Yeah. like if Mm -hmm. an animal in our care is in need whether an adult animal or a baby animal like we do everything and anything in our power to keep absolutely and and all the way aboard from from management to keeper staff to veterinarian staff everything to our volunteer staff. Yeah. 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 And there's never even a question of like, wait, how much is that going to cost? Which is something like (laughs) as a total side note, like as a zookeeper, lifelong zookeeper that owns my own animals. Every time I go to the veterinarians, my own animals. And I'm like, well, can we just get a couple x-rays on that? And then my (laughs) bill comes back with like $900. I'm like, what? Why is it that much? Because again, in zoos, it's like, you do whatever you need to do. Like nobody's ever like, well, yeah. that's going to cost a hundred dollars an x-ray. Sure. And with all my animals, when I go to that, I'm always like, mm, do I have to do that? Is there a cheaper option? Yeah. No, it's not like that at the zoo. It, it is no. just a hundred percent, a thousand percent all the way in. And then we assess later on. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's, you know, so with Fiona there, we were kind of making it up as we went along. There was no record ever of a premature, hippo calf being born and surviving. Um, so there was no rule book for what to do for premature hippo calf. We relied heavily on uh, rhino hand rearing information because that was kind of the closest we could equate to hippos, um, which is why we kept her in the barn so that she could smell and hear um, her parents and hippo smells in life because that had proven to be very important with rhino calves. And um you know, our veterinarians were amazing and we had a lot of support from like uh, human doctors that were specialists in different areas and in neonatal care awesome. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we had some support and information from rescues and sanctuaries in Africa, in South Africa, that primarily work with uh, orphaned rhinos or elephants. But they had had a few orphaned hippo calves in the past, which, again, those were like full term newborn hippo calves so it's mm-hmm. a little bit different but sure. they gave us all their information and we just kind of mushed it all together and just kind of went one day at a time to see uh every day hoping that she'd stay alive and well again. it is it really for our listeners out there that aren't familiar we'll put a whole bunch of stuff on our show notes uh about fiona and some of her journey and of course she has a facebook page and cincinnati their website will get you all the information too on our show notes and at the end of the podcast, but it really is an amazing story, but her journey that thus far, but what I having a zoo background myself, um, I was very impressed by Cincinnati's decision, I guess, if you will, to share and or publicize Fiona's journey from pretty early on where a lot of zoos that I've worked with before, they're a little bit more, hesitant when an an animal is born, even if Mm -hmm. it's healthy to publicize its birth, because in wild and then of course under human care, sometimes 
animals, baby animals don't make it. And so zoos a lot of times will not want to publicize that until we know that it's for sure a strong one. Because unlike mm-hmm. unlike a human baby where you can, you know, they run all the tests on in the beginning and then give them to the mom, here's your healthy baby. It's great. But even with all the veterinarian staff in the world, it takes a, it takes a few days or a few weeks, depending on the animal, to know if it's a healthy. So, I, yeah, I was just really fascinated that Cincinnati chose to publicize a story about an animal that pretty much started life with a taking it day to day may not make it basis. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So when I um, interviewed for this job, I met with our director of marketing and Mm -hmm. he was like, so I want to tell you our philosophy here and see how you feel about it. And I was like, okay. He's like, so we believe that um, our members and the people of Cincinnati and anybody else that cares about our zoo is part of our zoo and we want them to be part of that. We want them to know everything. They're with us every step of the way. So we let, uh, we announce pregnancies. We announce the day something's born and then we announce that it dies or if it thrives, like that's all part of the journey, which was, as you said, so, so different than the majority. (laughs) So different, different way, different Um, philosophy. Like I can't even put into words how different that is and I was like that's fine with me because I'm always for transparency particularly in this day and age where like there are no secrets like everything and anything gets out one way or another with social media and all the stuff um so I was like that's fine so so you know everyone knew BB and Henry had gotten here um they knew when they got here anybody that come to the zoo definitely saw how much they liked each other that they were making a baby um (laughs) Or practicing a lot, yeah. Practicing a lot. Um, we uh, were able to do uh, an ultrasound, which was the first Nile Hippo ultrasound to like show that there was a baby. Fun. So we, yeah. We knew in, I want that in job. December, <laughs> right? Um, and that was again. My head keeper Wendy Rice is a amazing trainer, and she was like, "Hey, why don't we just try this?" I'm like, "Go for it." Um, Go, so Wendy. In, Love you, girl. We yeah. appreciate your hard work. <laughs> She can imitate hippos and train them. Excellent. Um, so we uh, so we knew that a baby was there, and we shared that information with the world. Like, oh, look at those ribcage and heartbeat of a baby hippo. So when Fiona was born, um, I'm 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 good friends with our uh, PR director, and she called and said, "Okay, we're going to release this information." And Fiona was like 12 hours old, and she's like, wow. "We're going to release." We're going to, I got this press release I need you to look at. And then some people want to come to do some interviews this afternoon. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I was like, are you insane? I was like, this animal's not going to live. Like she's going right. to die in the next 24 hours. Like there's just no way. I was like, it's never happened before. There is no record. We can't find any information of what to even do for this animal. Like we can't even get her temperature up right now. This is ridiculous. Like she's going to die. Like do not do this. And she was like, okay, I hear you. But we're going to have to let them know that she was born and she died one way or another. So we're going to just let them know that now. And I was like, all right, do what you want to do. And uh, that was the only discussion we ever had. And it was totally fine after that. Like, I definitely had my moment. I had to, like, call Michelle the next day and be like, sorry, I got so mad at you. (laughs) you I hadn't slept in a long time. And I was like, you're insane. Um, but, and it was fine. And it was the total right call, you know, but a Absolutely. lot of people ask me like how we kept making that decision and how we decided what to share. And it really, once it really wasn't a decision and, you know, it's the culture and philosophy of Cincinnati Zoo to share this information. And so literally aside from that one conversation about like, Hey, you sure you want to do this? There was never another question again. We just shared it all. Well, and that's, and for me, I really applaud your friend, Michelle, and the Cincinnati Zoo in general, their philosophy, uh, especially in this day and age, um, because like you said, people are going to find out anyways, and people that support and love the zoo are part of your family, and of course, they enjoy the ups and the highs and the wonderful things that happen, but when, when you know, when the natural cycle of life happens and things pass away, it's also good to have them aware of that and on your side about that. And especially from a keeper point of view, when, you know, when, when we have lost animals due to old age or health issues, uh, I feeling the support from your community is wonderful because 
as a keeper or a staff member at a zoo, like you're, you're grieving, like you're, it's a loss. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, and so it, soul into it. It, yeah, you put so much time and energy into it. And, and then also from an education standpoint, uh, we are a zoo. There are natural cycles of life. Uh, we're giving them a hundred percent the best care possible, but things are going to age or diseases is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And if, as long as we learn from it and can do better next time or, if there was an ability to understand um, or treat an animal better, I know zoo vets are amazing now that they have conferences multiple times a year to share these documentations. Like you said, a lot of times there has, there's no, there's no um, playbook on certain species with certain issues like a premature hippo. And so through you guys documenting your story, both medically and publicly, then people can learn from it if and when it should happen again. Right. And learn from your yeah. successes and from, you know, maybe things you would do differently. So yeah, I definitely applaud, applaud you guys for doing that. And, and then from a public point of view watching, cause I of course was following Fiona, like her daily, you know, her daily snuggles, her daily walks, yeah. her, her monthly, her monthly birthday parties, uh, the keeper staff that was hand rearing her and holding her. And even though I know she is slimy, I was still super jealous. <laughs> I know it's, it sounds so adorable and the pictures all look so great, but then, you know, like I think there was a Fiona show that's like behind the whatever behind the veil. And it's like, yeah, we were sitting in a like 98 degree pool of poop. So, you know, <laughs> salmonella and E. Coli soup essentially that we sat in for hours every day. That's um, awesome. Which looks adorable because all the photos we get them before it became poop water, but we stayed in it as poop water. But you know, none of us, none of us are ever going to complain about that. Yeah, to swim with a. I know, and so for all about it, yes, for all the listeners who um, are just now learning about Fiona's journey, like I said, we'll put a lot of stuff in the show notes, and yeah, you can see some of the different articles. There's so many videos out there that are just adorable. I mean, they have millions of views because people are in love with her. Yeah. And now with that being said, do you think Fiona's journey helped raise awareness about hippos and hippo conservation? I think so. I think, you know, that I think there was probably plenty of people that just had never even thought about a hippo, right? Right. Like never given much thought to it. I mean, there are people that love certain animals. And there's definitely hippo lovers out there. But in general, there's more, you know, what elephants or giraffe or something have larger followings and there's more whatever stuffed animals and cartoon characters and things like that. Hippos are not generally, you know, as popular. Um, so I think her popularity definitely raised kind of just general awareness of hippos. Um, and, mm-hmm. and hippos are an interesting species for conservation because they're not um, endangered. They're vulnerable, like like pretty much every single mm-hmm. animal wild animal left in most of the world. They're all on some level of decline. Um, And so they are vulnerable, but they're such a key part of the ecology of their, uh, where they live of these river systems, waterways, grasslands that to just pay attention to them and what they need helps so many other animals um, that are more vulnerable or or more threatened or more um, endangered, as well as I feel like, Hippos, hippos need water. And one of the biggest issues happening right now in Africa and across the world is with climate change is everything's getting hotter and there's way less water out there. There's less rain, there's less reserves, there's less snow. So there's less uh, water in the lakes. And so there's, that's the primary issue with hippos right now, actually, is that they're losing like habitat literally just from climate change. Like they find hippos in areas where there used to be large lake, pond, waterways, and they're just living in like mud mud wallows, essentially, because there's no water for them. Um, and that happens a lot in uh, Tanzania and southern Kenya now, because they just experience such lengthy periods of drought now that the hippos there are really struggling. And I think Fiona is a good yeah. conduit for people to be like, I love hippos. Sure. I want to learn more about hippos. And then, oh, wait. There's some real issues happening here. Um, what can I do to help that? You know, help those hippos. Awesome. Yeah. No, I think the awareness and education is huge, and having kind of an ambassador animal like Fiona to get people excited and learning more about their natural behaviors and what they do and what they eat and how they live and what they need to live 
is really critical to kind of give a, she, you know, she gives a good face and name, in my opinion, to some of uh, the struggles and conservation issues of wild hippos. And now, so Fiona is one year old, right? Yeah, she's a year and a half. Oh, wow. Um, what is what is the date? The date's the ninth. Yeah, she's not quite a year and a half. She's almost, oh, no. Yeah, she's a year and a half. Oh, you're so cute. You're such a hippo mom. So she's you're such a hippo mom. Old. You know the months. That is so precious. <laughs> oh yeah. So my mm-hmm. my youngest is twenty three yeah. months. So yes, we you know we're still up until they're two. <laughs> it's it's appropriate to do the months. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So she's eighteen. Wow. Eight hundred pounds. Okay. And now a full grown hippo is how many pounds? Around three thousand pounds. Males can be okay. more like. Closer to four thousand wow. pounds, but on average, they're twenty five hundred. Okay, 4, so she still has a ways to go. Around three thousand. And but, what's her life like on a daily basis? Is she back with her family? Is she exhibiting normal behaviors? Yeah. So she, um, we succeeded against all all odds, including my own personal belief. <laughs> um, we reintroduced her to her mom when she was around five months mm-hmm. old. Um, and we had her back with her mom and her dad and out on exhibit acting like hippos in their pool by the time she was. Wow. Awesome. And yeah, yeah, it was pretty surreal. Those six months are like a weird blur in the slowest period of time ever. Like that's because you're a newborn hippo mom. That's, Um, that's totally normal. (laughs) That's how Uh it goes. Okay. Good to know. Um, and so, um, but ever, ever since then, she has spent every night with BB every day. She spends 24 hours a day with BB. The only time she's separated from her is for uh, certain mm-hmm. feedings because BB likes food and she will eat all of her food and all of Fiona's food. A girl, my baby. after my own heart, I definitely will eat all my kids' chicken nuggets and <laughs> macaroni and cheese. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I mean, I know you need some stuff for growing, but I'm hungry, so I'm going to take that. Um, so they spent all their time together and they all, and they have since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fiona's like, she's a superstar as far as a hand reared animal. Awesome. Because, yeah. If you can, you know, if, her, yeah, if you could maybe give our listeners a little bit about sometimes that was going to actually be my next question is when you hand rear, sometimes like, a, uh, at least a, I'm more familiar with, um, you know, an ungulate or a, a hoofstock kind yeah. of herbivore animal that it's not. It's tough. It's they're super cute when they're little and you're bottle feeding them, but as they grow older, sometimes they don't a either fit in socially or they think they're human, so they might even be a little more aggressive towards you. So yeah, if, yeah, if you could comment on that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that's 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 literally what I usually tell people is the majority of hand reared animals, and we've gotten better at it over the years and have figured out kind of ways to smooth the transition and and to try not to have our animals be too imprinted on the humans. Because in the early days, yeah, most of those hand-reared animals thought they were humans. Um, and then they had one of two reactions when they went back with the rest of their uh, kind, their other species or um, conspecifics, is they uh, then hated humans from that day forward. Because they're like, no, I am a zebra and I hate mm-hmm. anything that's not a zebra. Um, right. Or they never fit in with zebras ever again. And they're always like, wait, why right. can't I just hang out with you humans? Um, right. So they, they, they often have some, some trouble. Um, and we, again, we've gotten so much better at it. But again, nobody had ever done it with a hippo before. So, And she spent her first five months with humans 24 hours a day. You know, I mean, right. because hippos are very social and gregarious. And the newborn hippo is never, ever alone, ever. Um, and they spend their first two to three weeks just with their mom all the time. And then they mm-hmm. go back to the uh, herd, to the group, the bloat, and um, are surrounded by a ton of hippos. And so we were very conscious to make sure that she didn't suffer from like feeling too isolated or alone because we knew that was important for her development. Um, and we were kind of like, well, we'll cross the bridge in the future if this in the long run doesn't <laughs> does her some harm because she's like, wait, I'm a, sure. a hippo. Um, but you know, Fiona's awesome. And I don't know if anything we did had anything to do with it, but either way, she's a superstar. She, from the moment awesome. we put her in with BB, she was like, I'm a hippo. I know how to hippo. I'm happy to hippo all day long. And then when her humans are around. She's like, Hey humans, you got anything for me? And 
she'll come over and like people um, who see the videos or anything have seen, she loves to interact with people at the glass and to like pose for photos. She knows what a camera is. She's a, she's <laughs> she's a, diva. a diva. I love it. Very much. Um, but it, it does, it has, we have seen no signs that it has caused her any issues with adjusting or anything. Like she's never, ever did she have a moment where she would be like trying to get out of the stalls or get back with the humans or anything like that. She was perfectly happy to just be a hippo, which is a miracle unto itself. Really? Oh, she is such a superstar. That's awesome. Is she, is she a little easier to train for some of her, um, uh, often when animals are living under human care, the zookeeper staff will train them for medical procedures, not necessarily for tricks or anything like that, but is she being a good girl for her medical procedures and for her daily checks? She is. She is. She's, um, she's learned all the basics. She's working on the blood draw from the tail right now. So she's much, she's very, very comfortable with with human hands on her and, and she likes to be like pet and rubbed and all that stuff, which adult hippos do as well. But you're usually a little bit more cautious and mm-hmm. just trying to figure out what they're comfortable with and what they're not comfortable with. And so we already know that about Fiona, which is helpful. Um, and, but because she's a growing hippo, we can't just stick our hands in our, her mouth for much longer. She will soon have tusks sure. in there. So we've also been working on her doing an open mouth behavior and letting us do a mouth exam without us sticking our fingers in there. Um, and she's doing great. She's doing great. She's very smart. Awesome. And now for our listeners, I'm sure they're on their edge of their seats. What can they do to learn more about Fiona's journey? I know you have a Facebook page. Is that probably the best way to get current updates or on maybe Cincinnati's page? So there's a Cincinnati Zoo Facebook page, and then there's a Fiona Show Facebook page. So awesome. when Facebook uh, launched this idea of, of doing like kind of shows, which right now are more like mm-hmm. more like kind of like documentary vlog kind of things, I okay. guess. I'm not sure exactly, but they reached out to us. It was their first like phase, it was their pilot phase, and they said, "Hey, would you do one on Fiona?" So wow. A Oh, my PR people are going to be mad at me. Either way, we did a six, eight, ten, I don't know, episode uh, series all about mm-hmm. her journey and from beginning to end. So anybody that doesn't know anything about Fiona right now, you go to Facebook Fiona Show and you can watch it all. Um, I, and then we have I'm, I'm, I'm Googling it right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have a season two, that is- which is a little bit more of a look back as well as like things that have affected the city and more stuff about hippo conservation and all that kind of stuff. So there's two seasons of the Fiona show on Facebook Awesome for everyone to get all their Fiona uh, fixes fixes. Yeah. I know. I like my Fiona fixes. That's for sure. I'll be, that's what I'll be doing tonight. So (laughs) Uh, if I don't answer my friend's text, that's why. Uh, But with that being said, what can the average person do our listeners or people that, watch the Fiona show, they fall in love with her like I did. Uh, What can they do for hippo conservation in general? So like I said, I think climate change is is one of the larger issues facing um, hippos and a lot of the animals in the range countries. And and things we can do to affect climate change are are super easy, right? Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., you know, there's just turn off your lights, um, take less trips in your car, walk more often, you know, use your bike, carpool, all those things. Um, pay attention to plastics and what you're consuming and how much you can reuse items. Do you need those brand new clothes? You know, cause everything has this huge impact as far as, um, on the environment, as far as what it takes to produce it. Um, so I think anything that people see cited as helping with climate change will help hippos awesome no i i agree with you totally it's obviously be great if we could all go over to africa and work at a hippo orphanage or or help educate people about the waterways and climate change um and poaching or human animal conflict but in the same instance obviously not a lot of people have that ability uh so there's many things you can do literally from your couch or from your house to help like you said global climate change or animal conservation in general and then for instance for me with Fiona, I, of course, you know, they, I think they have really great products at the Cincinnati Zoo as far as I know they had the calendar that I wanted to buy. It was very, it was priced very affordably, but I think they have other things like that too, where your donations for your Fiona type gift goes, of course, towards 
her care at the Cincinnati Zoo, but also probably, I, I would imagine, towards conservation in general, because I know Cincinnati is a really um, progressive conservation group as far as the amount yeah. of money and time and science that they give to help many, not just hippos, but many different species. And all that information is going to be on their website. So I would highly recommend listeners check that out. Yeah, all of that goes to, part of it goes to animal care, but a large portion of it goes to the conservation fund. And and we have something really fortunate here. So all the Fiona, like behind the scenes tours and different kind of Fiona merchandise um, is all put into a pool that the keepers get to choose where 10% of that goes to. Um, so they get to choose the the organizations or the research projects or whatever um, that that goes to. So for the hippo ones, it, it's going to actually to Uganda to a waterways project that is to um, help protect the waterways and also do some um, anti-poaching patrols and things like that. Um, so it's super. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it there's real places that it goes and, and helps. Awesome. And uh, any of my really close friends or my husband, <clears throat> if you're listening, uh, uh, behind the scenes, Fiona tour is what I need in my life, like hardcore bad right now. So or anybody in the greater Cincinnati area, please do that and then send me videos so I can live vicariously through you because that sounds amazing. And like you said, and then the money goes towards animal care and then Uganda waterways, which is our real crisis now, like you had mentioned earlier. So, yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Christina, for your time so much today. I, I've really enjoyed uh, hearing Fiona's journey uh, firsthand from the, the second responder since your buddy was a minute <laughs> ahead of you, allegedly, <laughs> but that you were there to share the, to share your story uh, with us. And of course, Fiona's journey. And then, my last question, though, is just briefly, if you could give somebody, uh, for all of our younger listeners out there, what is some advice you would give to a person that's interested in the field of either zookeeping or even field field research or animal conservation? I think the thing um, to, to know is that it's a passion project, right? It's it's a it's a field and a career that you must be passionate about because you will not necessarily or probably probably not very likely receive a ton of compensation as far as money is concerned or even prestige or anything, anything in those categories. So if you are passionate about animals and animal care and animal conservation, then, you know, jump in. Um, but it's a lot of hard work, both, both mentally and physically. It's kind of, you know, like the post office, you work in all conditions, all weather, all seasons. Um, and it's not necessarily glamorous, um, but it's really rewarding. Um, and so I think that the people that care about it and want to do it generally find a way um, as long as they're open to the fact that it often requires some hard work and some maybe some unpaid uh, time in Un- the beginning. Yeah, oh, yeah, unpaid. unpaid yes, I, I, yeah, unpaid internship in Atlanta is how I got. I had to be at the zoo at like five in yeah. the morning and I would get done waiting tables at like midnight. But yeah, yeah. It, but I love. I mean, I'll never forget waking up. I, I'd be like the second or third person on grounds at Zoolanta in the morning to catch the first golden iron tamarind feces of the morning when they <laughs> when they would get out of their morning box, and I felt like a rock star. So I knew yeah. that the animal conservation, zookeeping industry, animal science in general was a good fit for myself. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and all. Uh, I really appreciate your time and sharing Fiona's journey. And hopefully I look forward to here in the near, near future, me, you and John getting together for perhaps a beer to share more stories. Oh, and I forgot to promise if anybody is still listening at this point in time, uh, if you could give me one quick, uh, and I can edit this out too, but if you could give me one quick PG PG 13 story about John that I can use as a collateral <laughs> to make him listen to this uh, podcast. Yeah. See, so you guys need to come here because you can have a beer. We can have a Fiona beer while you meet Fiona. Oh my God. All right. You be careful what you wish for my new dear friend, because <laughs> my schedule is pretty open right now. <laughs> see, and then that way we could, you could see John at a dance club live and in person. Um, I would love it. I can't, you know, it's so funny you even said that. I had like kind of blanked out that phase of my life, which for different reasons, probably some of the stuff we were partaking in might be part of the reason for forgetting <laughs> some of that. But yeah, I think there was a, um, 
I think there was a, a gay country bar that we went to on Thursday nights to do line dancing. And, uh, and John frequently came with us to watch us all make fools of ourselves. I love it. I love it. Now, did he do any line dancing? Because I that I've never seen. I would I would pay I money may, for I that. Think, I think I may. I think we may have gotten enough beers in him a couple times to get him out there. I'm a terrible dancer, so like I have to have enough beers. So I think we collectively would like get our uh, our beer bravery going and go out there and do a little bit of line dancing. Oh, um, I love you for that now. story and that visual. <laughs> Oh, Christina, thank you so much. And I will, I'm definitely taking up on the offer on a Fiona tour with a beer and more John stories. And of course, probably, I, uh, to be honest, I actually probably care more about the Fiona stories. <laughs> I have to but, Good, 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 good. And, and you've been such a great sport and I've learned so much and I've had so much fun today. And yes, our listeners, I will, I will keep you posted and on when I get to do that. Cause I mean, that's why this um, passion project that I, pay money to do is so well worth it. Right. And that's when, you know, got the animal. Yeah. The animal keeping gene for sure. So, well, thank you. Have a wonderful day. Give Fiona a nice, good belly rub on that slime for us. And uh, I appreciate your time and the Cincinnati zoo. Thank you for uh, letting us interview Christina today and everybody check out Fiona's show, Fiona's webpage and or Cincinnati zoo. They have a really great website, very interactive. It'll let you know on all all the happenings there in Cincinnati Zoo. And, of course, there's tons of stuff about Fiona on their page as well. So thank you so much, Christina. You're welcome.